Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are finally bringing you hope in the face of despair after our last two episodes on critical social theory and the empiricists striking back. Today, we are going to be speaking of, though not necessarily quite in, the new language of the spirits. And what exactly that intriguing turn of phrase means will become clear as we go along. But first, in order to set us on our way, we'll do a bit of a recap of where we've been and why this intervention is necessary by looking looking at two streams of problems coming down to the present, the first being the political expiration of Christendom as a project, and the second being the epistemological expiration of all the guarantees that made common knowledge possible that we see embodied in the dogfight between the rationalists and the empiricists. So, Dad, as usual, I'll be relying heavily on you to take us through these things. So why don't you start us off by talking about what Christendom once gave and why it is no longer with us and why we shouldn't be too terribly sad about that? Well, yes, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Um, uh, Christianity is has done a thankless job in being the nursemaid of Western civilization for a thousand years or more as this uh, job of being a nursemaid or a ersatz mother or something like that is a thankless one. And the child gets old enough to be mature and adult and just leaves behind without regret the rock from which it was hewn, the womb from which it was sprung. And so that's the sad story of Christianity's role in Western civilization, the end of Christendom. Um, it's not the end of Christianity, obviously, but the end of the millennium-long political culture of the West, which began when Charlemagne was installed as emperor of a new and holy Roman Empire by the Pope, and this epoch ended with the French Revolution. From that point on, the heirs of the French Revolution, which interestingly enough were primarily the German idealist philosophers, like Hegel and even already Kant. But one, Fichte, uh, wrote a famous treatise called The Vocation of Man, which basically said it's up to human beings now to rise up and do what God was always expected to do. And so this is what I called the sovereign self of modernity, the apotheosis of the human quest uh, to be God and not to let God be God, to use Martin Luther's way of, of framing this. Now, there was a lot wrong with Christendom, not least of all the fusion of church and state that de facto occurred, um, and the way that this continually compromised the church and its mission of the gospel uh, in uh, subordination to political power. So we shouldn't regret the end of this political arrangement. But we should recognize what also what was lost with the end of a common Christian culture in the West. As we've talked in the last two episodes, today heirs of the idealists and or rationalists and heirs of the empiricists are at loggerheads. They diverge over the foundations of knowledge. 
in a socially godless world. That's the important point I want to make here. Uh, in Christendom, God was there the creator of both matter and mind, the creator of both thinking things and extended things. And so God was the bridge between these two realms, the mind that thinks and the natural world, which is known in perception and conception and so forth. And even as late as René Descartes, he felt the need to make an argument for the perfect being uh, in the meditations on first philosophy in order to build a bridge from the inner certainty of the mind which knows itself and cannot doubt that it knows that it knows to the external world. But following Descartes and, and Locke too, I should say, on the Anglo-Saxon side of the continent, continent uh, and the father of the empiricist approach, also regarded God as the guarantee, the bridge of the correspondence between mind and matter, between perception, sense perception, and intellectual comprehension or conception. That, that's gone. That, that's just disappeared. God is no longer there to correlate mind and matter. And as a result, contemporary culture is in this standoff between those who want to resolve the subject-object ob polarity into mind, that's the tradition of the idealists, and those who want to resolve it into matter, that's the tradition of the naturalists. And it's just, a, you know, an amazing conflict, isn't it? Think about, I just noticed this this week, Sarah. There was a, a news report about a feminist taking umbrage at the fact that medical science has not paid sufficient attention to female biology, particularly in matters of heart disease and uh, arteriovascular problems. And it has just assumed that women are little men. And as a result, many of the typical uh, problems with heart disease that women have have been overlooked by male bias. Uh, and this is an argument from naturalism, that there is all the way down a deeply rooted biological difference between male and female, which has been prejudicially ignored by uh, male chauvinism uh, in the medical sciences. On the other hand, you have the constructivists arguing that even sexual biology and hormonal differences are nothing but an ideological construct, uh, which are meant to privilege certain power hierarchies or something like that, and that you can radically uh, do away with all gender distinctions because they have no foundation in natural reality. That's the kind of incoherent argument that our culture has gotten into, don't you think? Yeah, and I think it's really important to point out that this isn't just craziness, even though it appears on the surface to be sheer madness to make those kind of assertions. But like we've traced out in these last two episodes, there are very deep roots for these two diverging approaches to naming reality. And they do at root have to do with this loss of the, the, the theological, and I mean that in the very literal sense, like the talk about God center of all of Western Christendom and civilization. So uh, that was a great summary, Dad. Let's just back up a, a second here. And because 
before we get into our, our positive proposal, I think it's useful just to say a word or two more about both the um, political and the epistemological problems, because I think a lot of intra-Christian conflict over dealing with the, the wider culture is, um, well, I'll, I'll show my cards right away, is a kind of nostalgia of wishing, either wishing we could get back to the earlier arrangements or more ominously working to get back to them and um, thinking, you know, if only we, we try hard enough and everyone gets their act together, we can go back to that one way or another. So, so for instance, let's, let's start with the, the political experiments. I mean, you know, you, you started with Charlemagne, but I would say going all the way back to the brutal Roman empire, there was, and I don't think there's any way around saying this, a civilizing impact that Christianity had on the naturally emerging pagan state structures of old that actually had a profoundly positive and um, mollifying effect and took down over time the violence. And I am in no way claiming that it was perfect and there were huge problems with Jews and other um, you know, less privileged persons along the way. Nevertheless, it's always useful to compare. And compared to what came before and what pagan civilizations can do, what Christianity did to Rome and then later to the emerging European kingdoms was tremendously positive in net. So why shouldn't we, Dad, wish to bring that back or strive to bring that back or urge um, our political leaders to refine their Christianity and reinstate a more Christian way of being political. Yeah, that's quite a conundrum for us, isn't it? Especially in the Lutheran tradition. Um, we can't go back to Christendom because the political model is too thoroughly discredited. The democratic revolution, uh, the uh, secularization of the state uh, and the um, religious freedom separation of church and state, all of these uh, are, are simply imperatives that forbid the union of throne and altar that occurred, at least in principle, during the whole epoch of Christendom. Um, and even if we go back to the Lutheran Reformation in particular, um, uh, what galvanized Luther's opposition was the threat of being declared a, a heretic and then his case being handed over to the secular authorities for him to be arrested and burned at the stake. And he, early on in his career, argued for the freedom of faith, that in the sense that faith must be voluntary and free, that a coerced faith does not make Christians, it only makes hypocrites. So it was contrary to the gospel to muster the authority of the state in order to enforce uh, or somehow, uh, yeah, I guess enforce Christian faith. Can't be done. Of course, the other imperative of Luther's theology was that the Christian is responsible uh, before God for the love of neighbor concretely, and that means politically in his or her context. And so from the very beginning, the Babylonian captivity of the church and treatises like this temporal authority to what extent it must be obeyed, Luther is intent on showing that his gospel theology implies a reformation of secular society uh, uh, as a part of the comprehensive vision of Christendom. 
the kingdom of Christ, therefore, on the one hand, renounces coercion in principle and relies on word and spirit alone. And to the extent that Luther uh, not only polemicizes against the Inquisition, but also uh, against the Crusade. The, at the time, the Pope was whipping up war fever against the Turks as a way of reuniting Europe uh, under the leadership of the Pope. And Luther's treatise on war against the Turks um, eviscerates this crusade ideology. He says, as if we were an army of Christians, no such thing. He just totally rejects that. So we both inherit from the Lutheran Reformation a mandate to be politically relevant as a form of neighbor love, yet without yet without the uh, gospel imperative ever to use coercion in support of faith, and in a situation in which social godlessness is objectively our situation. Luther could still argue, you know, first commandment, have no other gods. What does this mean? Fear, love, and trust in God above all. What does that entail? Love your neighbor as yourself. Those arguments are past. You can't make those arguments publicly and politically anymore. Uh, the objection immediately sounds, you're imposing your religion upon us, and you have no right to do that. So how are we to proceed in a, in a godless society? That was so beautifully stated of the, the dilemma we're in. And I, I think it really forces us to see two things. One is that for all of what appears to be this all-out cultural ethical warfare we're in right now, it's actually everyone is asserting their vision of the good and trying to put it forward. And nearly everyone who is a, you know, a good faith actor, however ideological, is doing it because they actually think it is good for their neighbors and for the polis at large. So it's not a battle, at least on the, the surface level, between good and evil. It's a battle between competing visions of the good and the very idea that our polis should be a place of shared good that is extended to all our neighbors is a profoundly Christian idea. Many, many states have, uh, have always operated on a purely extractive model, like we uh, aristocrats or royalty are at the top in order to skim off everybody else, and we hold all the power and that's it. But the idea that we should be basically shoving our vision of the good onto other people is in some way a profoundly Christendom idea, and I think that's that's exactly where we are. You know, it's interesting, Sarah, because what you're saying is that we're still living parasitically upon the legacy of Christianity and Western culture. It's still Absolutely. the underground tacit uh, moral norms, even though I think they have eroded uh, quite dramatically. I think that people might want to claim that they are doing what they're doing uh, as public servants for the common good, uh, but it wouldn't be really hard, would it, to uh, critically scrutinize that and unveil the uh, interests, uh, the very partisan interests behind those uh, claims to universal benignity. Yeah, well, I, I just think that people take for granted that that, that is a 
what the goal is, like like the the kind of broad, sketchy ethics of liberty or liberation or fairness or equality or all these things. Like, where did they come from? I mean, people are generally vastly historically ignorant. <laughs> so why should they know that actually in some weird way they are continuing to function Christianly without the faintest idea why or how or any of like the intellectual or spiritual tools or gifts that would help you do that well. The other thing I wanted to say is that it really strikes me how much the the modern secular conundrum is is really also a product of Christendom in a both negative and positive sense. So you've mentioned before how much like the wars of religion seriously undermines all Christian claims within Christendom and the bad alignment of church and state and so forth. But there is also the very powerful Christian drive towards secularization in in like, for example, you say Luther's insistence on religious liberty, which, you know, he couldn't always carry through consistently. But there was a, a widespread, obviously not just Lutheran conviction that indeed faith has to be uncoerced. So the freedom of religion actually comes out specifically of the Christian religion. That was not something the Romans were willing to grant very freely. But if you do that, then you really are opening up space for atheism or, you know, papists, that being the more immediate threat, or nonconformists later in England or dissenters and, you know, even this history of the United States is a, a gradual coming to terms with like, well, are we really going to let Catholics and Jews in, atheists in, et cetera, et cetera? And how is that going to work? But if the the very conviction of what good is and what religious liberty is, is Christian, then what do you do when you have a growing mass of people who at least do not consciously share those Christian values? And I think when it, what we want to say is the reason why we can't go back is because it is literally impossible to disentangle now without sheer purgative violence. And that is also very much at odds with any Christian ethic of the polis. Uh, absolutely. If you want to be convinced of what we're saying here, uh, dear listeners, I would urge that you open up and find a copy of John Locke's Letter on Toleration and give that a careful reading. It's a fascinating uh, stepping stone you can see how much he is tacitly dependent upon Luther's theology in arguing for the freedom uh, of religion, freedom of faith, and also how he kind of makes at least a, a rough uh, Luther-like distinction between the secular state and the church, uh, saying that the state has jurisdiction over the body uh, but never over the soul, never over conscience, and that it is churches uh, which uh, minister to the conscience, to the soul, uh, but the state's jurisdiction is uh, restricted to external bodily affairs. That's at least an, a rough approximation of the kinds of distinctions Luther was trying to make within medieval Christendom. Uh, but Locke himself draws the limit, like I mentioned earlier, when he says the only kind of religion, uh, religious opinion that cannot be tolerated is the atheist. Now, why, why John Locke, you will allow Jews and uh, Muslims uh, to be tolerated, but you won't allow an atheist? And he answers, and this is what I was saying earlier about an objectively godless society, he says uh, the atheist is, can be bound to no promises. 
that sounds like a strange thing because we know lots of atheists who are morally decent people and so forth. But what 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 Locke was arguing is how what connects my present act of making a promise and my future act of keeping or not keeping the promise. Why can't I just in between reinvent myself and say the I who made the promise, well, well, that's past and it's gone and doesn't count anymore, and therefore I can be the promise breaker? Uh, what would give any assurity that the promise maker and the promise keeper are one and the same person? And Locke argues that's only possible with a cultural faith in God who connects the dots between the promise maker and the promise keeper. And I think that's rather a profound thought, an observation about what has happened with our objectively godless society. I can't help but see a connection there to a spiraling divorce rate, because indeed, what does connect the, the bride or groom that make a vow at the altar with a irritated and disenchanted person 20 years later? Yes, no, I think that's spot on. Exactly right. The, the idea that God has joined together, let no one put it asunder, beginning with you, dear bridegroom, beginning with you, dear bride, right? And I just want to make one more comment here before we move on. As discredited as the ideal of Christendom is, it's equally true that the Enlightenment culture of liberal high of high enlightenment culture of, of of Western liberal society, secular society, is right now in the midst of an extreme crisis, and I was always thinking as a young person that it was Karl Marx who put his finger on the hypocrisies of bourgeois liberalism and so forth and so on. Not that I wanted to follow Marx into uh, his revolutionary politics so much, but I thought it was a really insightful analysis of the self-deceptions uh, of high enlightenment culture. Uh, Marx was one of those critics of the rationalists who unveiled all the irrational forces to which their touted faith in reason was in fact subject to, put it, to put it crudely, follow the money. <laughs> and you'll see, and you'll see um, how th thought is determined by its rela economic relationship to the means of production. But in our contemporary moment, it is the um, critique of white supremacy that is unveiling uh, from another angle of view uh, the racial political application of this godless sovereign self of modernity. Uh, and I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I'll just quickly repeat it, that, um, that J. Cameron Carter has unveiled in Immanuel Kant himself how it is that the black-white trope was uh, rationalized and turned into a standard think thought for the 19th century the apex of the colonial period in which the white masters were entitled to subjugate the darker-skinned people as brains uh, to brawn, that kind of thing. This whole modern episode of the godless sovereign self came to a catastrophic conclusion in the Second World War 
and it's when it was transmuted then into the Cold War and mutually assured destruction. And since then, you know, Western culture is in a, in a, in a malaise. Uh, people like the first Bush, President Bush, thought the end of the Soviet Union would bring a new world order. But I think what we see today is a world that just doesn't know how to go forward at all. And that's what we really want to get to talking about, right? Yeah. You know, it's really curious as, you know, as all the, the especially racially related stuff has flared up so strongly in the past year, as I've done my own, you know, looking into this subject, what's really peculiar and fascinating is that it's never been better. I mean, it's been a really good past two decades or so in terms of race relations and terms of the uh, improved economic opportunities. And the actually, though people tend not to know this, the actually tremendous decrease in police violence towards people of color. Um, More proportionally, white people are killed by police than black. But why why doesn't that come through? <laughs> why does that improvement not seem convincing? Well, it could be that people are just lost and drifting and, and need a moral direction. It could be that um, actually having enough money and opportunity somehow doesn't do it. It could be that we are soul sick overall in this culture and have lost our way for all these very deep reasons we've been analyzing. And um, and, and meanwhile, you continue to have the, the very wealthy on their crusade to make the world a better place without any very close examination of what does make the world a better place and and why all these um, money and tech-based solutions don't seem to be fixing anyone's soul sickness. Sarah, to quote our common lord and master, man does not live by bread alone. And the material improvements in culture simply accentuate the perception of inequitable distribution. You can be objectively uh, 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 sitting on a boat that's rising on a rising tide, but if you're still sitting on a rowboat and your neighbor is sitting on a yacht, you're saying, yeah, we're both lifted up, but look at the difference between our habitats, our habitations, you know? So I think that, and, you know, I've argued in my systematic theology that the, the way, the, the concept we should use to express today what was meant by the old-fashioned word concupiscence, uh, the lust for domination, libido dominandi, according to Augustine, is envy. Envy makes the world go around. Envy is insatiable. It doesn't matter uh, objectively how much better off I was than I used to be. Uh, It's always, if you are not satisfied by faith in God, and satisfied with the love of God, you are then insatiable for these uh, social status uh, symbols of recognition. And that's, I think, what fuels a lot of our godless uh, conflict today. Yeah, that's very interesting, because I suppose if you're just striving for your daily bread, then that is so all-consuming, and it has been for most of human history for, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of years, that um, that just by necessity uh, put a damper somewhat on the envy just because you didn't have the time or energy to see, and that your neighbor wasn't doing that much better. But um, but then if uh, envy is the driving force, then you can see how that would corrupt equality very badly, because then equality is not some sort sort of loving fairness, but it's how dare you get ahead of me? I'm going to pull you down. Oh, you're st- still down below me. So um, I, I can I can justify any behavior to pull you up. 
I think uh, maybe maybe that is the the root evil is that envy has corrupted our equality or our our ideal of equality, huh? No doubt about it. You're right that uh, the science, technology, and frankly, capitalism have raised the standard of living throughout the world dramatically, but they have not, especially in the last thirty years. They have not mediated the gap between the rich and the poor. That gap between the haves and the have-nots has grown exponentially in the last 30 years. Or, or maybe the have and the have-mores. And the have-mores, yes. Okay, okay, I'll buy that. Anyway, so that, I mean, and that, what do you do when people's bottom line is uh, social status and social status recognition? Hobbes said famously, for secular man at the beginning of the modern period, we do everything for gain or glory. And I think that's the the soul of godless humanity. We do everything for gain or glory. And I, I have to admit my own hermeneutic of suspicion is that people launder their lust for gain or glory under the appearance of compassion, fairness, and equality, but it's still at root the same thing. Well, yeah, of course, because with that comes also a obsessive need for self-justification. Right, right. Where you, have a, where you have a faint memory of the golden rule, where you have a faint memory of the biblical demand for justice, you want to justify yourself by your virtue, virtue signaling, political posturing on the side of uh, quote-unquote justice, uh, rather than making actual, real, concrete, and sacrificial commitments to the needy neighbor right before your eyes. I, I'm perhaps being a little bit overstated there, but I think it's the Lutheran thing to say about how uh, vice hides under the appearance of virtue. Uh, absolutely. Right. Okay, so then to, to make the, the move into our next section, um, I just wanted to recap again the um, the impossibility of going back to the old epistemological model, which was either um, God unifying the subject object splits because and or the, uh, you know, the the neighbor, you know, uh, binding us into a body, God was there to make all those things work. And then as you described in the Enlightenment, we begin to see the subject and object pull apart, pull apart, pull apart, and finally the relationship is snapped. And you have the rational or idealists on one side who say all of reality is socially constructed. It's all a product of the mind somehow. And the uh, empiricist um, side, which says um, all mind or thought is a product of blind material forces. And so what we have basically is is mind first on one si- side, matter first on the other side, both claiming that the, the, the opposite is its product. And what you see is, so I, again, I think this is um, not at all visible on the surface level to the kind of battles we're having, like you identified about women's heart attacks and versus, you know, is there such a thing as female biology at all? But actually that is the surface manifestation of this very deep 
division within our knowledge, our ability to know, can we know anything? Do we know anything? What is true? And I think that really has come to the fore now in that we don't only lack common faith, we lack common facts. And so many of our our contemporary cultural battles are over the facts themselves. And we simply don't accept the same sources. We don't accept the same content. We don't, we distrust how the statistics are accumulated, whether the reporting was accurate. We wonder if something is being left out or added in. And I think it's not just, um, it certainly is greatly exacerbated by um, economic and tech uh, impact on media. But somehow the reason it surfaced the way that it has is because there is this fundamental inability to have common facts anymore. And that goes right back down to the subject object mind matter split. What possibly wholesome or healing or constructive role could Christian theology play in this very depressing polarization that we're in. I think the first thing we have to say, Sarah, is uh, the just will live by faith. The just will live by faith. That's Paul quoting Habakkuk at the beginning of the letter to the Romans. And what both the idealist and the empiricist had in common at the beginning of Western culture's objective, socially objective godlessness, was a jettisoning of that dictum that the just will live by faith. No, we want bedrock certainty. We want epistemological certainty. We want a knowledge of knowledge that can serve as a foundation for everything else. So whether you found that certainty in Descartes, I think, therefore I am, an intellectual intuition, or you found that certainty in Locke's looking at a sense perception and saying, I cannot doubt that I'm seeing what I'm seeing. In either case, the common assumption is that instead of living by faith in God, which would mean a way of living that's just, for reasons we'll go into shortly. Instead, what you're doing is saying, if I cannot uh, live by faith in God, let me find some sort of imminent certainty that can serve as a foundation. Now, as long as our culture continues with this decision, to find an imminent basis of certainty on which to build a, a cultural foundation, Christian theology can't help, can't do a thing. There's nothing we can say to either side that helps. What we actually have to say is repent and believe the gospel. That's what we actually have to say. We have to say that there can be relative certainty and there can be relative progress in our conceptions uh, of reality, that's the progress of science, uh, we can have that relative betterment in knowledge and its applications. But we cannot have the bedrock certainty that you're looking for. Let me jump in here and ask a question on behalf of listeners that I know are getting alarmed here. 
because your specific critique here is addressed not to the new tools of thought or science that arose with the Enlightenment. In fact, I've heard you argue that those are actually arise on the soil of Christendom for a reason, because it, it comes out of an understanding of an ordered universe and a, an orderly God who would allow us to know the natural world better. What you're critiquing specifically is the uh, belief, it is a belief in certainty that these new tools, whether rationalist or empiricist, give us certainty or continually approximate certainty, thereby jettisoning what exactly? Like God or, I mean, I I, I guess I, I hear in this the, the rise of a fundamentalist backlash, which I know that you are not a party to, but I'm wondering how, how those, how you thread that needle. I think what I'm trying to say is that if you do not live by faith in, let's put it this way, the promise of God the Creator uh, to progressively uh, preserve and extend the human relationship to the natural world in a way that is beneficial, uh, constructive, uh, even healing or progressive, if you refuse to live uh, with that certainty, the certainty of faith in the power, wisdom, and love of God the Creator, then you are going to look for a different foundation of certainty. And this is going to lead you into the kinds of polarized fundamentalisms that we're seeing today in the secular camps of the naturalists on the one side and the idealists on the other side. So the difference is this. The Christian position acknowledges the uncertainty of our worldly knowledge. It's built in. We cannot have absolute certainty in worldly knowledge. We can have relative certainty. We can have the best available science. We can have the best available philosophical accounts of our experience. And we can keep working at them, acknowledging our finitude and also our sinful egotism that corrupts our imminent knowledge of reality. That would create a, situ a political situation in which I can never say, I'm right and you're wrong. I can only say, this is how I see things. This is why I think this is the right way to go. What do you think? What am I missing? That creates a dialogical situation. It imposes a hermeneutical burden to understand another's thought and in, in experience in good faith and so forth and so on. The more certain I am of faith in God, therefore, the less fanatical and the less certain I am of my politics. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, that's that's really helpful because I think what it shows is that every person has to adopt some kind of attitude towards both knowledge and faith. And we are always going to be having and striving towards knowledge in areas of, of life. And But there's always going to be faith. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's faith, for instance, um, like in the empiricist, the scientific tradition, there is faith that this scientific method of, you know, um, articulating a hypothesis, collecting data, testing, refining, coming toward a theory whatsoever, there is actually a bedrock faith there that that does advance knowledge because it does give you real access to the thing that you're studying. There is a, a, a functioning faith there. And so what you're saying is that the the, the issue is when um, 
the certainty is attached to knowledge or our ability to gain knowledge rather than the certainty being attached to faith, which in an almost astonishing reversal and ironic twist allows you to say what you don't know. Like (laughs) the certainty of faith is the uncertainty of knowledge and being the, I don't know what you say, the comfort with uh, that comes of that actually makes space for dialogue with your neighbor that a certainty of knowledge would not allow. Am I getting there? Yes, of course. And then you have the rule of experts, competing experts. Just look at any contemporary college or university faculty, and you will see a schism running between (laughs) the humanities and the social sciences on one side and the natural scientists on the other in in terms of these issues, as we've been talking about all through this episode. Ten years ago, when we were debating same-sex unions and so forth, a, a, a friend of mine in sociology said to me, the psychologists who are very much today becoming biological determinists have one view of, of, of homosexuality. Sociologists have a, a very different view, you know, and it's just it's the same bifurcation that we've been talking about. I just want to add, and that's why you absolutely need competing experts in the domain of knowledge. Otherwise, it becomes a new certainty of the wrong kind if the the open discussion about science and knowledge gets shut down. And the, the hidden presupposition of the whole modern Western culture is this foundationalism, that my entire work depends on having an absolutely certain foundation of knowledge. And we live in a dynamic world that is in continual flux and change. Such certainty cannot be found. A relative, well-evidenced, well-explained, best available thinking kind of certainty can certainly be there. And it should be there. Uh, But it should be understood as the common big project of all thinking minds collaboratively working on this and not the rule of experts, uh, if I can put it that way. Uh, I mean I mean by that a political statement. I'm, I'm, I, like you, am very f- afraid of the technocrats claiming a competence, a political competence that would be very threatening to human rights and uh, uh, democratic self-governance and so forth. But let's get back to what the church should be saying in this situation. What's the new language of the spirit? What's the alternative to to this polarization that we're in right now? I would say that there are two elements here that correspond to both sides of the polarity we've described. With the empiricists and the naturalists, when we venture to speak about God— we have to say what in the world we are talking about. All appeals uh, to refer to God as something out of the world, something that is cannot be located in time and space, all such appeals are in bad faith. There may be reasons to think that God transcends the world, but the basic meaningfulness of all our speech consists in its reference to something that all human beings in principle can see the reference. What in the world are you talking about? So that's one thing we want to say with the naturalists. 
the basic claim to uh, um, sensibility. What is your reference? What are you talking about? And here we have to say very bluntly, I'm talking about the man, the son of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm talking about the God of Israel, whom he named Abba Father and who named him Beloved Son. And I'm talking about the spirit of this son and this father uh, who has uh, generated on earth the Christian church and its tradition of discourse about said God. That's what in the world I'm talking about. Now, there might be all sorts of other things we can say in addition. We're talking about a heavenly father, not an earthly father. We're talking about Jesus taken as Christ and Son of God, not simply a a marginal Palestinian Jew. We're talking about a Holy Spirit, not any old spirit. All sorts of qualifications we can make to those reference points. But we have to make our language concrete and sensible and say, this is what in the world I'm talking about. That would be my first point, Sarah. So you're starting with this very specified God who is also a historical actor, and that's where the specificity comes from. And I find that striking on two levels. One is because, you know, when people say, well, I don't believe in God, you know, we could say, you wouldn't believe how many gods I don't believe in. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> right. tell me tell me which particular God you don't believe in, and let, let's see if by some faint chance it happens to be the God I do believe in, but I kind of doubt that. But it also says to me that... Um, um, you know, I, I remember I must have been in college already reading Anselm's, was it his monologion, where he includes the ontological proof, God is that greater than which nothing else can be imagined. That's the proslogan, yeah. Proslogan, right. And I remember just thinking like, what kind of a world was it where this actually convinced anyone? Because <laughs> I just knew like, <laughs> I was like, well, I, all it's, it's, I, I mean, it's, it seems like purely rational. It's actually like, it's just purely a product of your mind. I can't conceive anything greater than that. But what is that? Wh- why does that imply that it must exist? I know Anselm's argument is that the only way it could be greater than everything else is by actually also existing. But that seems so, so utterly tautological and unconvincing to me. So it sounds like one of the things you do, as you say, in specifying what we mean when we say God is, again, interestingly enough, not creating this foundationalism or this certainty that you could prove by some external value, which of course is the whole problem, but it's more like bearing witness to uh, something in the world, that has appeared in the world, is not purely of the world, of course, that is then subject to further testing and engagements and um, making claims, and that the the final knowledge certainty of that awaits future confirmation. It's not a present confirmation. Very good, Sarah. And you picked on Anselm and the ontological proof, but actually the alternative to what I'm suggesting and the specificity of Jesus the God of Israel as his father and their spirit. The alternative to that is uh, attempts actually to establish the meaningfulness of language about G-O-D in terms of a foundational argument. The foundationalism of the Enlightenment had a prehistory, and this it goes back to this attempt in medieval theology Uh, as a preliminary consideration uh, to establish the meaningfulness of talk about G.O.D. 
through such demonstrations or proofs, which are not so much meant as you took it to be uh, empirical persuasions of the existence of God, but rather analytically to uh, demonstrate the coherence or the intelligibility of a notion of God. So you had proofs for a first cause or proofs for a perfect being or proofs for a necessary being or proofs uh, for a final end of all things. All of these, alongside the ontological arguments, were ways of establishing the meaningfulness of the term G-O-D by reference to something that's out of this world. And that's why it seems so ghostly uh, to contemporary people. You know, I think contemporary culture rightly asks a very simple question. What in the world are you talking about? And here (laughs) Christian theology has to begin. I'm talking about something that in principle anybody can uh, know, perceive and know. Jesus of Nazareth, the God of Israel, his father, and their spirit, who is the generator of the Christian uh, church and theological tradition. That's what I'm talking about. That would be the first point. That's interesting. Let me just make a, a quick comment that I hope we take up more in the future. But my, my own sort of thought experiment here is that people tend to believe in this very specific God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and their spirits, not by ontological proof, but by what I call the hagiographical proof, which is encountering other human beings now or in history who live according to faith in this particular God and whose presence and action in the world is so positively transformed as to, in some wonderful way, compel belief in the God that gave rise to it. But I think that that connects to what you're saying as like it actually being on the ground accessible in principle to anyone. And it tells me what the heck you're talking about when you talk about God. That's right. Yes, the just will live by their faith, as we said earlier. And therefore, how is faith communicated? By the lives that believers live, uh, in, a, in a very broad sense, and, and so forth. Good. So let's move on. Second point. Of course, now people say you believe in Jesus, his Father, and their spirit. What kind of claim are you making about Jesus, his Father, and their spirit? And I'm going to say, well, the basic claim is that uh, these are the one true God. And then that immediately raises the question, well, what do you mean by the one true God? And, you know, in our culture, this claim is taken to mean our Christian God is the right one and everybody else's God is an idol. And therefore, this is taken in triumphalist and superior, superior, uh, supremacist kind of way. Uh, And, of course, that would be uh, typical of modern culture to either uh, on the Christian side or the uh, non-Christian side to take the claim that way. Whoa, let's back off. That's not what's being said at all. The first thing to understand is that the word God in Hebrew, Elohim, uh, and in Greek, hotheos, the God, is a title. It is not a personal name. It is a title. In the Old Testament, the personal name of God is the tetragrammaton, the four-syllable, unpronounceable word that scholars uh, vocalize in a way that you don't want me to say out loud, so I won't, but readers under, uh, listeners understand what we're referring to. 
the Tetragrammaton, the revealed name of God. And the contention of the Old Testament is that this God, who revealed himself at the burning bush to Moses as the God of the ancestors and the God who would now liberate the people Israel from bondage in Egypt and deliver them to their own land in Canaan, this God claims to be the one true God. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's not obviously true. It's a claim or a <laughs> claim to truth or a promise. And in effect, which invites people to live by faith, come and see, follow my ways, obey my voice and see whether I prove to be the one true God who in the process along the way is constantly delivering you from false GODs gods that enslave you or bind you or corrupt you or ruin you. But I'm the God who's going to save you, liberate you, and heal you now and forever. That's very interesting because it means it's built right into the even title and definition of God when Christians are handling it. The fact that creation is disputed territory, that there is sin, death, and devil, that there are false gods, that people can live the wrong way. So, I mean, even though we can try to talk about G.O.D. apart from the whole of human history, the fact is it doesn't really work because built into it, like you said, is this awaiting confirmation aspect of God. And the only reason and it awaits confirmation is because things are disputed. There, there is some kind of battle going on. Yeah, in contemporary systematic theology, no one has in, assisted on this point with more power and insight than Wolfhard Pannenberg, who says that disputability about God is built into the very reality that God has created, for good reasons, because it keeps believers from fanaticism to acknowledge that the God who has claimed me for faith and made me a person elected me to be a member of his covenant community is also beyond me, way beyond me. He is the one true God, and therefore I am never entitled to boast of my election. I'm only entitled to boast of the electing God and what he is doing with me and for me, but through me on behalf of all. There's a certain claim to universality here. So I can never look upon my election to faith as some kind of religious superiority over others. That would be the false interpretation of the phrase, one true God, a claim, I've got it and you don't. Oh, no, no, no. If the Lord is the one true God, he's got us for his purposes, not our own. Right, right. And if it we're living in disputed territory, then we ourselves, even believers, are still disputed. And uh, our confirmation is also, in a sense, awaiting an, an eschatological conclusion. So then how does this different uh, approach then to both G.O.D. and who G.O.D. is, how does that then, in disputed territory, as we're saying, awaiting confirmation, so how does that then affect our relationship to knowledge? Because we've just been laying out this rationalist empiricist split, but surely this has strong implications for how we as, as believers in Christ can, can think about how we think and know about what we know. 
Well, you know, the old joke is about the opera, it's not over till the fat lady sings. Now, the point of an eschatological theology is that reality is still in, in a state of becoming. We're not at the end yet. We're in the middle of things. Uh, and we have a revelation of our origins, not knowledge, but a revelation. And we have a revelation of our destiny. Again, not knowledge, but a promise. And this means that um, we have a certainty about who God is and what God promises to be for us. But in the meantime, we have to uh, walk by faith. And that means our knowledge has to be this humble uh, business of uh, taking the physical reality in which we live, move, and have our being as the what Luther called the mask of God, the mask of God. So nature is to be understood as the immediate activity of God's creativity. And that everything, we, now all the bad stuff too, the cancer cells as well as the, uh, uh, the endomorphines, everything in nature, everything in nature is the mask of God. And nature has this Shiva-like blessing and curse persona. And so uh, that's why the second Isaiah says, I create weal, I create woe. I create light, I create darkness. I am the Lord and there is none like me. And so that's an acknowledgement that nature as we experience seems awfully ambiguous sometimes about human welfare. It's also an (laughs) acknowledgement, right, that in nature we are dealing with the immediate working of the Creator's continuing act of creation. Uh, So we have to then recognize both that nature is dynamic, that it's moving things along, uh, that it's a divine activity uh, in which... uh, Uh, God is uh, actually creating us. Uh, We are being created in our relationship to nature. And I say what that all boils down to, Sarah, is that we can say to the empiricist and the idealist, a pox on both your houses. (laughs) Let us move into the clean, fresh air of pragmatism. Okay, say a word about that. Yes, this is simply the basic idea that human knowledge, human thinking, human science, human philosophizing is located in the middle of things in which the creature has a primary and vested interest in negotiating from here to there, from today to tomorrow, uh, to the benefit, to the enhancement of life life for the sake of life. It's a practical engagement with reality in which theorizing is always a reflection on praxis. Praxis is always intelligently guided by theorizing. That there's a continuum between ideas and perceptions, sense perceptions. That there's not a dualism between thinking things and uh, physical things but rather we are embodied minds uh, uh, and sold matter that is negotiating for life 
uh, through the flux of becoming. And so pragmatism as a way of understanding genuine knowledge would simply say, I have a vocation, a calling from the creator who has planted me into this maelstrom of experience and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And in obedience to that mandate of creation, I seek to know in ways that uh, image or mirror the goodness, wisdom, and power of my creator. That's what I call pragmatism. So what you've just described sounds to me a little more tilted towards the empiricist side than the rationalist side because it is in the midst of things and encountering things. But would you say maybe what it's offering that empiricism doesn't is that it it can create space to take as seriously things like um, meaning and symbolism and, I don't know, archetypes, images, all the, the what we call maybe subjective ways that humans genuinely make sense of their lives and not a kind of rigid empiricism that shades off into positivism. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, and pragmatism, I think, would be uh, quite, uh, quite uh, uh, attuned to the power uh, of ideas. The, I, I acknowledge that pragma, pragmatists theorize and theory is a way of talking about uh, uh, throwing ideas out there, which hopefully illuminate the situation we're in. Uh, but ideas that are pragmatically justified are those that illuminate our actual experience. They're ideas that make sense out of reality, at least provisionally. They're ideas that prove to be beneficial for the purposes of life. Uh, so, yes, of course, human beings are not simply uh, animals that uh, respond to stimuli in the environment reactively. Uh, the great power of human imagination is that it is not uh, confined to a simple response to the environment, but reflectively you can look back at your physical habitat, your situation, and you can say, how can I rearrange things so it's easier to do this or easier to do that? And with that, you can alter, transform your environment. You know, that's part of what it means to subdue the earth, to make it into a pleasant garden and so forth and so on. So I would never want to uh, minimize the power of language and the power of, of thought. But I, I think that where, where sin plays its pernicious role in human culture is that devil's, shall I quote Luther here, that devil's whore reason, <laughs> which sells itself to the highest bidder. Reason can often be corrupted. And reason can bedazzle and blind uh, and rationalize almost anything. And as you've been studying, you know, these modern ideologies have a kind of compulsive, obsessive power. People get sucked into them and then they take over their lives and they become instruments of an ideology with deleterious consequences for their fellow creatures. 
Right. So then would you say as a theologian that pragmatism as an epistemological approach is a good one to adopt because it it encodes within itself this refusal to be foundationalist or certain about knowledge and therefore builds into its whole approach to knowledge room for faith, which is not necessarily or explicitly faith in Christ or the Trinity, but it is room for faith and therefore it can it can bridge this subject-object gap without without needing to prove one way or another. Is that um, what you're getting at? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, again, I've had to explain to people, I don't regard pragmatism as a foundation for Christian theology. I think Christian theology can do its own thing without any philosophical uh, foundations. And I don't regard pragmatism as a foundation for Christian theology. What I do think is that some disciples of German idealism, particularly Americans in the 19th century, by the names of William James, uh, Charles Saunders Peirce, and uh, John Dewey, and Reinhold Niebuhr, to name, and Josiah Royce, to name five people. Uh, the, all of these thinkers were children of German idealism, what we've been calling constructivism in this contemporary polarization. And all of them realized that the rise of natural science uh, was rather insistent upon the fact that thought must correspond to reality and not reality be bent to thought. And so science had this salutary effect on them, I think. I agree with that. But they were also enough heirs of the idealist tradition that they were well aware of the power of language and of ideas uh, and traditions and religions and ideologies and worldviews uh, to influence human behavior. So they were trying to reconcile these impulses. We could do a whole episode sometime on pragmatism, I think, along these lines. I think that pragmatism is the secular uh, reflection, particularly clear in Charles Saunders' purse, of, uh, of biblical Christianity. All right, yeah, we should definitely do something on that in the future then. All right, well, we're we're already um, past an hour here, but I'd, I'd like to just finish up by talking about what makes this the new language of the Spirit. So, so wrap us up here by telling us why you use that phrase and what it means more concretely for Christians operating in this um, cultural implosion we're suffering through. Right. The, the, that phrase is borrowed from Martin Luther's uh, disputation concerning the humanity and divinity of Christ, and which Luther made the simple but profound argument that uh, the name Jesus refers to a finite creature in the world. But this reference takes on a new signification when the Holy Spirit identifies this finite creature as the incarnation of the infinite Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, so there's both a concrete reference in the world to something that's commonly perceptible, but it receives a new signification when the Holy Spirit makes this reference refer to God uh, in this way. Uh, that's the 
Luther calls this the new language of the spirit. Now, it's not the sexy thing that some uh, uh, weaker theologians have tried to turn it into, that we can now dream new dreams and have new visions and imagine a convenient kind of God and call that the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the last thing Martin Luther is thinking of. He would condemn all that as pure enthusiasm. Uh, that would be the word, the spirit without the word, the external word concerning Christ. The new language of the spirit is that you're pointing to something that to all the world ended, dead, refuted, um, on the cross, buried, end of story. To all the world, that's what the reference to Jesus means within the imminent frame of meaning. Christ crucified, end of story, end of, the, end of discussion. Another utopian Jew crushed under the heels of the empire, forget about it. It should be just forgotten about. But the Holy Spirit, who raised this crucified and buried Jesus from death, now proclaims this very Jesus, the crucified one, as the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And this new signification, Luther says, is that special innovative language of the Spirit. Now, why is that salutary? What difference does that make? Yeah, well, obviously, it makes the difference of, of introducing into the imminent world a, a, something categorically new for which there is no pre-existing vocabulary. Here you have um, one who comes not to be served like a king, but to serve like a priest and to give his life like a sacrificial offering as a ransom for many. Wow, whoever heard of that? Whoever heard that the Messiah could be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? That combination is the innovation in reality and therefore the innovation in language, the new language of the spirit. That's what you've called before a catacrestic metaphor, right? It's something right. that appears paradoxical, but actually in its startling juxtaposition introduces new knowledge. And that means inherently that reality is becoming an historical, not, not static, right? Because that's the only way you can... Yes, it means that the proclamation of the gospel as new language of the spirit is an event. It's a divinely creative event creating caring communities of Christ people. And that would be light shining in the present darkness uh, of this uh, horrible polarization in our cultural world. And it would be the, the earnest cry, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when in church, we as pastors announce to the congregation, you are the children of God, your sins are forgiven. Those are these startling juxtapositions of realities that are not available e either to theoretical contemplation or to empirical testing and proof. But they are the, the new language of the spirit creating a new reality in time with this particular body of people. Precisely. Oh, ever so. Of course, these things 
sound like cliches to us, but we have to bring out again that when I say you are the body of Christ or you are forgiven, I'm really talking about you as you really are in the real world with all your doubts, confusions, sins, and errors, uh, and maybe even crimes. I'm talking about you, you, just as you really are. That's what in the world I'm talking about. But I'm predicating you in a brand new way. And that's why we need so badly to assemble in person. So it's not just, that's why you can't, I mean, though the word of God transmits okay <laughs> over YouTube and podcasts and so forth, it's not the same thing as being together in a congregation and hearing your specific pastor say to the pastor's specific congregation, hey, I'm talking about you. You are a child of God. Your sins are forgiven. And I shall be saved body and soul because your particular body has been baptized and fed at this table. Amen. Yes, that's right. That's that's the way we can light a candle in this and rather than cursing this present darkness. All right. Well, listeners, go forth and do likewise. And next time on the show, we will be undertaking Paul's epistle to the Galatians, more relevant than you might think to the foregoing episodes. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.